tonight we'll be reading Hebrews chapter 11 on page 851. Hebrews 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offerings... And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he commended the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would not have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Uh, thanks for that, Beck. Um, great reading. It's really great to hear someone get a little bit fired up and it's a great passage to get fired up in. I think you get the message after by the end of it, don't you? Um, how did they do it? Well, I think it was by faith. Uh, tonight, our sermon is on the topic of faith. Uh, last week, we looked at the topic of contentment. Um, we live in a society that is discontent. And uh, if you remember back to last week, uh, the, like if you, and if you just think about it, our society uh, is full of just this underlying thirst that is never quenched, uh, lust that is never fulfilled, a grasping that never quite reaches for more, for more beautiful and for better, a search for a lasting satisfaction, a search that never ends. It's this discontent, this search for fulfillment never happens. Uh, but last week we saw that Paul had learned the secret of contentment. And Philippians, if you, if you weren't here last week, have a read through the book of Philippians. I'm convinced it's a, it's a book about contentment. And it's just incredible to see uh, the way that he understands Jesus as loving and guarding and looking after him. Uh, he is near us. He is with us. He is for us. He controls our present circumstances. He controls our future and we've got no reason not to, to, to relish in the contentment that we can find in our good shepherd who meets our needs. And this love of Jesus, this joy in Jesus is something that we need to cultivate and learn. And we need to put it into practice. Uh, now, we're doing, a, it's, it's a two-week series, and I wanted tonight to sort of complement what we did last week. And here's the issue. You see, even if you're content, there are still things that get us down. I mean, contentment's kind of happy with how things are, but it's not necessarily satisfied. Things aren't perfect necessarily. We're just content with how things are going. There's still things that might niggle. We struggle with our sin. 
We're confronted with the sheer number of people that ignore Jesus in our lives, the people we love. We're confronted by suffering in this world. We're confronted by injustice and pain and imperfection and meaninglessness and the way that this world is just passing away. And we're confused about why things are the way they are. So we're content, but we're not fully satisfied. We look for contentment now, but we look forward to full satisfaction later in the world to come. And so what that means is we need to sort of cultivate a contentment, but we also need to guard against a form of discontent. We need to guard against the discontent. And we need to add to our contentment things like hope and endurance. And really, all of these things can fit under the heading of faith. The Bible calls faith. And so that's what we're doing tonight. We're looking at faith. We're going to look mainly at the passage here we've got in front of us in Hebrews 11. Please keep that open. Um, it's a great, it's one of the best passages really to look at what, the, what faith is about. Um, and this is the thing, okay, this is the thing. If we can get faith, if we can understand faith and really in our hearts know what faith is, if we can put it into practice, then I think we'll be able to handle anything that life throws at us. This is, this is the amazing uh, gift that God gives to us in, in what faith is. So let's pray um, because faith uh, is not only something we cultivate, it's something that we are given from, as a gift from God. So let's pray that he'll give it to us. And let's pray as well because in terms of discontentment, this is the grumpy time of the year, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the contentment we can know in Jesus. Um, we pray that you would convol- cultivate contentment and guard us from discontent. Please stir up our faith and grant us faith. Lord, um, as hard as we can try, this is only something you can give us. And so as we read your word, please teach us what it means to trust you and endure. Please increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's much that we could say about faith, and um, we're not going to be able to do it all tonight. Uh, But there's just a couple of things we're going to do. There's George Michael. Um, You might move on to the next slide. Thanks, Al. (laughs) That's just um, a word association, isn't it? But I don't think George Michael makes it there in the list of heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, does he? Uh, Three things we're going to learn about faith tonight. Uh, The first thing is, what is faith? Just some preliminaries, looking at what faith is. And then look at two threats to our faith, our doubts and our fears. So let's look at what faith is. And like I said, the Bible has heaps to say. Um, But the first thing to say, really, is that faith is just trust. I mean, we have all these kinds of uh, ideas of what faith is thrown at us. We use it in English in a few different ways as well. Um, uh, it's, some would say that it's kind of wishful thinking. So it's not, there's not really a high degree of certainty there. Some would even use it as a lucky charm. And you see soccer fat players, when they get on the field of the World Cup, they sort of cross themselves as though like their faith is some kind of lucky charm. Or some, someone described it recently as a spiritual form of gambling. You know, you're not really sure about it, but you sort of put your eggs in this basket and say, well, may as well pray just in case. And that's certainly the way that some people treat it. But the word that is its translator is just trust. And as we practice faith, what we're doing is we're trusting just like we would trust other things. Just like you're trusting the seat that you sit on. Just like you trust your car when you get there. And depending on the trustworthiness of the thing that you, that you are using, um, it will depend upon the strength of your trust. Obviously, if your car's not very reliable, you're not going to very much trust in it. If your seat's not very reliable, you're not going to trust in it. But if your God is reliable, and he is, then that trust is very very sure and very certain. Um, so faith is trust. God wants us to trust him. There's other things we could say about it. God wants us to trust him. We were made to trust him. 
um, and, and so on. There's more that we could say. The second thing I want to say, and this is perhaps the main thing that we want to focus on tonight, is that faith is blind but certain. Okay, it's blind but certain. We get this actually from the start of Hebrews 11. So keep, look, at, look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So you can see there's a, there's a blindness there, what we do not see, what we hope for. And what we hope for is obviously something we do not see because it's in the future, you know, it's, it's hidden from us that way. There's a blindness to faith. Uh, this is something that Paul actually picks up in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says this, and I think we've got the quote, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, Paul sees this, I mean, this is in the context of his struggles, but he sees this very much as the, the pattern of ordinary Christian life, that there is an invisibility to Christian faith. We can't actually see what's going on a lot of the time. But at the same time, there's a certainty. And we see that in the words there in Hebrews 11.1. 1. He says we're sure of it and we're certain of it. Um, and and there's, there's two really good reasons why we're certain of this. The first is the thing I said before. If we're trusting in someone who is trustworthy, then we can be certain of it. And when our trust is in God, it's a certain trust. And the second thing, which is also often neglected, is, uh, is this. Uh, we can be certain because the Christian faith actually puts itself on the chopping block of history. Uh, this is something that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, it grounds itself, Christianity grounds itself in the historical claim of Jesus' resurrection. And it says, along with Paul, that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're all wasting our time. Our Christianity is unique amongst world religions in that way. It puts itself there on the chopping block of history and, and offers itself. It says, look, if we're wrong, then this is null. This doesn't work. I should apologize for what I'm saying now because it's not real. Um, but as it is, uh, Christians are people that believe that historical evidence points to the truth. And we believe with historical conviction that this faith is certain. So there's a couple of reasons why it's certain. And because faith is certain, it's because faith is certain that we can have contentment. This is what we talked about last week. Knowing that Jesus is there, that he, that he loves us, that he's near us, that he guards us, that, his future, that our future is in his hands. This is the fruit of certain faith. But it's because faith is blind that it's actually susceptible to a variety of threats. And they're the threats we need to guard against. Okay, The blindness of faith opens itself up to a couple of different threats and there's two that I want to talk about tonight. There's doubt and there's fears. They're pretty broadly named, but we'll get to the details. The first one is fears. This first one is to sort of doubt God's word, uh, to doubt God's promises because of our circumstances. I'm not sure if you've experienced this or not, where you sort of feel that his promises are kind of fiction. Is this, is this real? Is, this what, is what God describes here in the Bible really happening? Uh, you look around and you think, oh, it doesn't quite look like the world, what I see in the Bible. You start to wonder, is this, 
Is this really what it means to be a child of God, to feel like this? Doesn't God care about my situation and what just happened to me then? You look in the Bible and you see leading examples of the Christians and they live terrible lives. They're horribly, horribly treated and persecuted. Most of them die for what they believe. Is this really what I'm up for? Paul describes his life like a broken pot. Is that a vision of what I want in my life? He suffers in innumerable ways. And I wonder, has that doubt kicked in for you? Where you've wondered, what's the point of being Christian? What am I, what am I doing here at church tonight? What's the point? Why am I bothering? Well, it's, a point, it's important at this point. It's important at this point to remember this. That God and his blessings cannot be seen. That this is invisible. And we need to live for what is unseen. We need to live not by sight, but by faith. We need to keep this, uh, I guess, in our minds and our attentions, continually reevaluating what's going around us in, in terms of what is unseen. And this is precisely what Abraham does in Hebrews 11. We're, just gonna, we're not going to be able to focus on the whole chapter. We're just going to pick out a few different things. And we're going to look at Abraham in verse 8. So flick down to verse 8 in chapter 11 and read with me. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Now what the author of the Hebrews is doing right here is recording pretty much exactly what happened in Genesis 12. God said to Abraham, go, and it says almost as quickly, Abraham left. There wasn't much sort of fussing about or thinking about it. He just did, like God said it, Abraham did it and that settled it. God didn't tell him where to go, he just went. And if you read through Abraham's story, there's, there's a lot of different things that kind of, you wonder if it really makes sense. Abraham acquires a lot of wealth, but he, he never actually makes himself a house. He moves from place to place, living in a tent everywhere he goes, dragging his possessions along as he goes and his family. And so he, um, in Hebrews, it says in verse 9, have a look at verse 9, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. So he lived in the land, but he acted like he didn't really belong there. He was a stranger. He was an alien. And so Abraham lived by faith. He didn't get caught up in his present circumstances. He lived like a foreigner. And the only reason you'd do that is because you know what Abraham knew in verse 10. Have a look at that. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So the way that Abraham lived as a foreigner in the land because he knew his home was elsewhere. Listen to the summary of all those people, not just Abraham, but the others in the surrounding verses. In verse 13, the author of the Hebrews summarizes like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them from, sorry, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to sort of draw to our attention here as we sort of seek to be people who trust God according to his word. First, what this does is it eliminates that horrible, horrible teaching that is often referred to as the prosperity gospel. There are variations on the theme, but essentially it goes like this. God will bless you with wealth and health and great things in this world if only you have enough faith. 
If you get a bit more faith, you get a bit more wealth. And friends, this is a lie. This is a horrible abuse of people, often in very difficult circumstances. And it's a, it's a blatant lie and it needs to be stopped. If you hear someone saying, saying it in the street, stop them in the street and correct them. This is horrible. It really needs to stop. God's promises of blessing are so much bigger and so much more elaborate than just this world. They aren't for this broken world. This, is not, uh, this world is not our home. That's what, that's what Abraham learned. By faith, we are aliens and strangers here and our home is not here. It's with God in heaven. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is, uh, well, often people will come along and look, there's variations on the theme as this as well, but they'll say something along the lines of, I've been trusting God you know, for, for ages. I'm trusting God with my life that he'll, you know, he'll provide for me a husband or a wife and a good job and a house, but he hasn't done it yet. Oh, maybe God hates me. Maybe he's punishing me for something I've done wrong. And, you know, this, you might not have those words in your mouth, but there might be some kind of variation of that in your life. We sometimes, I'll just say this, some, we sometimes think that we're trusting God with our lives, but what we're really doing is trusting God with our agenda for our lives. Okay? We, we think that we're trusting God with our lives, we're giving our lives to him, but what we're really doing is trusting God with our agenda for our lives. The thing is that real faith defers control of our lives to God, even control of where we're going to go. This is what one of my friends like, has, has liked to call taxi driver faith. Okay? Now you'll just like to take, to take a taxi, right? Um, you, you know, you hail them down. They might not come exactly when you want, but they're in the driver's seat. Okay? You say, look, I want to go to Newtown from here. That's where I live. And they say, okay, and you know, they start driving off and you, know, you think that over the bridge might be the quickest way, but they you know, head out towards Parramatta you head around and all of a sudden you've gone past Sutherland and then you, you arrive at Newtown and fork over a whole lot of money. Um, in the end, you get there, right? That's what faith's about. No, that's not what it's about. The problem with taxi driver faith, God's not just in the driver's seat. God's actually the one who's determining the destination as well. You get in the seat of the taxi and he just drives. You surrender control with faith and he leads you according to his will. Now, why would you want to get into that taxi? That's a bit scary. Why would you want to get into to God's taxi when he could take you anywhere? Um, well, here's the reason. Uh, we can trust God and his agenda for our lives. Isn't this what we found out last week? The joy that Paul had for, in Jesus? Didn't, didn't Paul say that to live is Christ? He wanted to be with him no matter what? Can't we trust God that he will take us where we need to go? I mean, there are promises, and if God is faithful to his promises, we want to hold him to it. He works in, the good, in, in all things for the good of those who love him, then I want to be in his taxi so he can take me um, where it will be good for me. Now, that's not to say there's not going to be questions. You know, we can trust God. It doesn't mean that all's going to be disclosed to us. We can't know in the taxi exactly where he's going to take us. And there'll be questions. What, you know, where are we going, Lord? Why, why is this happening, Lord? How are we going to do that, Lord? <laughs> How's this going to happen? There are questions that are still going to happen. And the important thing to remember in this is that faith doesn't have all the answers, but it has the most important answer, that the Lord is in control. Your complaints might be completely legitimate. It might be a cry of injustice where you know that God couldn't possibly desire that that happen. 
might not see a possible explanation for what is happening and why God would want to do that. Faith can't answer these questions. But it has the most important answer, that the Lord is in control and he will fulfill his promises. Tim Keller explains the story of Abraham like this. God says to Abraham, go. And Abraham goes, where? God says, I'll tell you later, just go. And later, he promises Abraham and his barren wife in her 90s that she would bear a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll tell you later, just trust. And after God had promised Abraham's family would become a great nation of people, he tells Abraham to take his only son and to kill him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just go and do it. Abraham had faith and he obeyed God in every circumstance. He surrendered control and trusted God. He couldn't know it at the time, but in every one of those circumstances, God used for his own agenda in bringing salvation ultimately in Jesus. Guys, there are many people who make promises in life and they don't carry it through. A parent, it might be for you, a, a good friend, possibly a partner. Advertising material makes promises. Owning a house promises security, but all you need is a thief or a fire and the promises proved hollow. A high-paying job can promise a significance, but it can often leave us used and abused. So in a world where so many promises are made and so few kept, who can you trust? Well, God is a God who makes big promises and he keeps them. We can trust him and we can trust him and his agenda for our lives. That is what faith is. Well, the second threat that can be posed to our faith is the threat of other people. Okay, the first one is those doubts where we just don't know what's going on. The second one is other people. Okay? And wow, we hate conflict, don't we? I mean, some of us probably actually like it more than others. I know a few of those people. But generally, I think as a culture, we hate conflict and we'll do anything to avoid it. Now, again, we need to realise that our experience in our culture is vastly different to the experience of many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Consider China or Indonesia and Iraq who, you know, they've got government authorities like looking down at them and those kinds of things. So we've got to keep things... Just got to remember that our experience isn't always the same as other experiences. Um, but it's worth just considering and telling the story as it is. Our conflict is where, you know, we ate someone else's sandwiches from the fridge at work and now it's a bit awkward to be in the same room as them. Often, you know, this is as, as bad as the scale is. It's, it's as bad as an irritating boss or just a guy that you don't really get along with at work, okay? Um, so that's often our experience of opposition and conflict. Um, it does, get, it does get more serious than that. And honestly, I want to say, honestly, the opposition we do, we do face is actually quite substantial. It's just often covert. It's often the psychological and you know, the, the mind power games and the manipulation that people put on us. It's the slow-moving tide of popular opinion in our society that shapes our expectations and that we need to somehow oppose, but it's just so subtle that we can't always get a grip of it or see our enemy. 
Uh, these things still invoke a fear of other people in one way or another. And we need to learn from our fathers in the faith, these people that are listed in Hebrews 11, fathers and mothers in the faith, to learn to stand against this tide of opposition. And so the author takes us back to the account of Moses to show how people didn't fear. So have a look at Moses in verse 23. Look at the way that they didn't fear the king of Egypt because they saw that God was bigger. Verse 23, this is Moses' parents. Moses' parents, by faith, hid him for three months and after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Skip down to verse 27. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw the invisible one. It's kind of a weird kind of wordplay, isn't it? Look at the way that faith shaped Moses' obedience. I mean, which would you choose? Living in Egypt as the prince of Egypt with all the treasures of Egypt or living as a slave of Egypt? Which one would you choose? Have a look at verse 25. He, Moses, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I mean, what spectacular faith. There is so much more that we could go on about Moses. There are, there are so many examples here, but I want to get down to verse 32. Have a look at this list. He gets to the end and he said so many things already, but he's just, it's almost like the list is unending. What more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Now, these, these stories are great. I mean, we cheer when we hear these stories. And why? Because they're heroes of faith. No more than that. Because God delivered them. Have a look at each of those examples. They not only showed faith, but in each case, God provided for them. Remember David when he defeated Goliath? He came out pretty good in that situation. Or who shut the mouths of lions? Remember that situation with Daniel when he was thrown in the, the lion's den and the lions didn't have a piece of him? They quenched the fear of the flames. Remember Daniel's friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace but didn't get burnt by them. Or verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Those two examples of the widows in the time of Elijah and Elisha who received back their sons from the dead, resuscitated from death to life. Amazing stories. We cheer on. But importantly, it says in verse 35, in the second half, we're told there were others, others that weren't delivered. Now, if it stopped at verse 35, in the first half, we might think that it was their faith that delivered them. We might sort of go along those prosperity gospel lines and think, oh, yeah, they had faith and they were delivered. That's what I need to do. I need to get more faith. But no, it was God who delivered them. And in this case, it's God who didn't deliver them. Have a look at verse 35 in the second half. Others were tortured and they refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. 
And listen to this. The world was not worthy of them. The people that trusted God and who didn't get what they were, what they were hoping for in that life, the world wasn't worthy of them. These were the real heroes of faith. Now, I want to tell you, um, this, this story here at the start of verse 35b really got my attention during the week. Uh, who's it talking about? Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. It's not immediately obvious. No Bible stories come to mind. Um, I think when you look at the start of verse 35, it says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. The sentence doesn't finish. It continues. But other, other women were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. And the story is actually referring back to a part that we're not very familiar with, uh, but it's one of the histories in between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a part of the Bible called 2 Maccabees, or not the, not the Bible, actually, it's not the Bible, but in the historical records called 2 Maccabees 7. And it's this extraordinary story of faith where this mother and her seven sons are brought before the king of Syria, a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. And this guy really had it in for the Jews. And he'd bring these Jews out and he'd, he'd, he'd dare them. He'd say, I want you to defile yourselves. Eat pork or you know, transgress one of the laws. And if they refused, he'd kill them. And he brought out these seven sons and this, this mother of the sons. And the first one said, there's no way we're going to do it. And he says, right, you. And this is, this is gruesome. He cut out his tongue. He cut off his limbs. He scalped him and roasted him over a fire. And he said, who's next? The second son is dragged out. And the king asks him, will you defile yourself? And he says this, never. You are depriving me of this present life, but the king of the world will raise me up to live again forever. And he died. The third son came up and he stuck out his hands and he stuck out his tongue and he says, take them. And all six, six of the sons died in a similar way, one after the other. The seventh son gets brought out and the king talks to the mother and says, look, honestly, and he says to the son, he says to the son, look, honestly, if you, if you recant from this, I will, give you, I will make you a rich man. I'll give you a place in my kingdom if only you defile yourself for this. And he says to the mother, says, look, please convince your son to do this. And, he go, and the mother goes up to the son. This is the mother who's just seen six children die. She goes up to the son and she says this. Don't be afraid of this executioner, but be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in the time of mercy I may receive you again with them. I mean, what is it in a, in a mother that would say that to a son? The son just said, what are you waiting for? And he died, and then she died afterwards. I mean, this, this is faith. Can you see, if you haven't before, what the knowledge of the resurrection does for you or could do for you? I mean, think about it. If you had this kind of faith, what opposition in this world could possibly derail you? You could take anything that life threw at you, absolutely anything. Like the psalmist says, if, if God is for me, who could be against me? I mean, it, it strikes real when you think about that. I mean, when you think about Jesus coming back and rising to life again, and then you think about the concerns of this world, I mean, they kind of just 
dribble out of existence. They just they leak from your mind and you've forgotten about the concerns of work and all those kinds of things. Um, we have the same future hope. No, no, we have better. Have a look at verse 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's a little bit hard to, say, to understand exactly what he's talking about, they're talking about, but all of these people that we've talked about here are people that existed before Jesus. And yet we have Jesus who has, in history, died and risen from the dead. We've got the Gospels telling his story in history, about what happened. He got up and he showed the scars to the disciples to show the evidence of it. Look, I've died and I've risen to life again. Friends, we have a a better resurrection. Uh, We need to follow their examples, but we have it made more certain. They didn't put their certainty in the hands of doctors or our care catalogues. They didn't have a vague sense of life after death. We need to follow their example. We need to get down to business and trust our Lord and not in the things that are seen. Not grasping for the things of the world as though they're going to save us. Looking for a better resurrection. These are the two threats to our faith, remember? Our doubts uh, and our fears. And we need to combat both of these by living not by sight but by faith. Trusting that God is faithful to his word and that our future resurrection will be glorious. Okay? And so there's just one application point that I want to make today. I want you to make this the focus of your prayers and the thing that you put into practice and seek to cultivate this week. Will you let God determine the agenda for your life? Will you trust his promises and obey his commands? Will you make heaven your home and not this earth? That is, will you trust his promises that you won't seek to to set up home around you like you're going to stay here for a while? Like Abraham actually live live in tents to actually sort of somehow not make this your permanent residence, but in your mindset actually change your thinking so that this this is temporary. Your house that you're mortgaging is now your hotel. Okay, These aren't the places you're going to be dwelling forever. Will you obey his commands and treat sin seriously? Will you seek to live a a life of radical discipleship for Jesus? I mean, you're free to. You don't need to worry about what will happen to you in this life. So will you use your freedom for radical discipleship? Will you revere the power of God over the powers of this world and those influences that you follow so readily? This is faith, and friends, this is... I want, to, I want to underline this, that this is what it means to live the normal Christian life. You might look at the examples of Hebrews 11 and go, wow, I mean, that lady who offered her sons, I mean, that's extraordinary. I want to say, yeah, look, they're extraordinary circumstances, but it's, it's ordinary faith that she had. She trusted that she's got the same trust, the same saviour that you have, the same resurrection that you have. It's the same faith, ordinary circumstances, sorry, ordinary faith in extraordinary circumstances. The doubts that you face and the opposition that you face won't be quite as direct as that. They'll be a bit more subtle. And you're going to feel sometimes that it's, it's quite subtle. Other times you're going to feel like it's just punched you in the face. It's going to be tough. 
And you ask yourself the questions, those, poor, those questions that we asked before, like why and how and where. Sometimes you're going to get strange looks from people. They might slam the door in your face. They might cut you off from their lives. Uh, but this is what it means to live the normal Christian life. You'll be tired of the battle of discontentment. Each time you see other people, you'll be discouraged because you'll compare yourself to them. Deep down, you'll love to have the material wealth of those people. You'll love their house. You'd love their clothes. You'd love their friends. Our feelings will go all over the place. There will be times where you feel like you're in the desert. You'll feel like and you'll question God's presence. And that's at this point that we don't walk by sight. We don't let these determine things for us. We walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for not only giving us the inspiration of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, but for giving us the very thing that will enable us to face anything that life throws at us. We thank you for faith and we ask you that you will increase our faith. Please make us one of these people of whom the world is not worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.